Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. Well, folks, welcome to this episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. We're going to we're going to switch gears on you a little bit this time and and talk a little animal health. My name's Adam Jones. I'm not going to introduce myself. You guys know who I am at this point. Uh, but we're going to go the rest of the way around our um, our online meeting here. We're recording this online, so if if there are some audio issues, I apologize ahead of time on that. But I'll I'll do my best to make sure make sure everybody comes comes through nice and loud and clear through the internets here, right? Um, but I'll just go ahead and uh, you guys go around here, and and we'll start with Dr. Tony Martin uh, as far as introductions here. Yeah, very good. I'm happy to be here today. This is Tony Martin. I am uh, listed as a staff veterinarian for MFA Incorporated, with uh, which includes this responsibilities of basically being a resource person for our dealer locations and our end user customers in terms of providing information and some guidance, and especially to our dealers. Uh, then my activities in trying to manage our animal health department means that uh, we play a role in trying to get the right animal health products to our dealer locations so they can make them available to end user customers that need them. And so uh, I've been around here, I guess I just started my now 34th year with MFA. So I've seen a lot of things and I've seen a lot of areas of our trade territory, but I'm glad to be here today to see what the discussion turns into. Sure. Awesome. Well, it's, well, it's good to have you. We appreciate you taking the time to jump on here. You bet. Uh, our other guest today, uh, along with Cameron, who, who's here today, but uh, our other guest is uh, David Yarnell, and I'll let him uh, introduce himself. Well, Doc was excited to be here. I'm ecstatic to be here. So, yeah, my, we, my we appreciate Tony. that kind of enthusiasm. Yes, that's right. That's how I will. So, uh, like Adam said, I'm David Jarnell. I am a livestock specialist for Region 5, but I cover District 9. Um, I know I serve the, the livestock cams in the area and also service the stores. I know that uh, Doc and I have been working uh, pretty close here lately on, um, you know, getting some um, resources to these stores for animal health. And um, I guess it's going to be huge for us and a, and a big confidence builder for them. And um, I've been in different parts of MFA as far as regions, but uh, I started with the company in uh, 01 and uh, they've just been stuck with me ever since. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty happy. Good, good. good. Well, we're, we're certainly happy to have you for sure, for sure, Dave. And like I said, just just like I said with with Tony, I appreciate you taking the time to to jump on here. And, and so uh, first off, I think I think we want to get into just a little bit of, of kind of the tie across to, to animal health. You know, I think when folks um, see a feed supplier, uh, someone such as us or or just marketing companies in general trying to make that that pass across to animal health, you know, from nutrition. Can you guys just touch on kind of how those two work hand in hand? Well, I mean, you can go for any species, but, you know, obviously uh, Missouri being a, a primarily a cow-calf state, maybe kind of how that ties across uh, or, or how maybe you've seen that change over the years. Well, if you don't mind, I'll jump in here on that one. And it's, uh, you know, from a veterinarian with actually I've been a practicing veterinarian for 40 some odd years now. So I've been at it quite a while, several years of private practice. Uh, truly, I believe when you're trying to make that connection between feed supplier and maybe what animal health comes along with that is that really the number one thing I consider when I consider 
or look at health aspects of a production system, no matter what species, is what's the nutritional program that supports that biological system, which is that walking, living, breathing animal that producers are trying to make a living with or trying to economically, you know, come out on the positive side of things. And nutrition is a big part of it. So um, animal health, we provide some tools that can aid the disease prevention and control to go along with maintaining a healthy animal. But we don't uh, keep the animal healthy out of a bottle or a box of animal health supplies. It starts with some animal husbandry and some basic nutrition that really is the kind of information that uh, your feed supply representative is, is geared toward providing and is willing to bring along extra animal health tools to help flesh out the entire management program that goes into any species we're talking about. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, you think about us as humans, we don't we're only healthy based on how well we eat as well, you know, so our nutrition plays a huge role in that. So, yep. Number one, I, I'd add to that too, you know, uh, doc had helped me with the presentation. And, um, when I was given that presentation, you know, the, I think it's the first slide there. We talk about that, you know, um, what, why vaccines fail. And, um, I think from the employee standpoint, we don't, they don't throw that, that animal health component. I mean, I'm sorry, the nutrition component in there with the animal health aspect of it. And uh, as part of one of our top five factors of, uh, you know, to maximize in this case, a calf crop disease and parasite management are one of those and nutrition is one of those. And um, I think that uh, when you get those two together, like doc said, you don't, you don't just get it from a box or a bottle. It, it takes both. And um, I, I think that there's not a lot of people, I think there's less people in our industry that realize that than there are that do. I mean, I, I think obviously the, the, the vets do and, and a lot of these, uh, these feed guys do, but getting that to the, to the public, um, they think that one fixes both and, that, and that's not the case. So, yeah, yeah mo you know, most folks are not, not looking for just a Band-Aid. You know, it, it may be, maybe what you're looking for in the short term in the, you know, in the one hour or two hour term. But, you know, over the course of the season and, and making sure we have something to, to market at the end of the year, you know, most profitable producers looking for looking for a little bit more than that. So just in full disclosure, you know, we're sitting here February 4th, right before it's supposed to get really cold, having this conversation. And so I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about vulnerability and, and from your guys' expertise and over the years or what you see in the field, what, what's kind of the most vulnerable time that that you had that you see out there for for kind of a cow calf herd operation well whether it's spring or fall the most vulnerable time is that uh, two to three months leading up to either kidding lambing calving whatever you want to talk about it's that late gestation period uh, that is so critical for having the mom prepared to deliver a new baby and be ready to feed it and maintain her condition and then do well enough to be ready to breed back in a timely manner to where you can keep the production cycle going. So to me, the most critical, I mean, you want to get them bred, but uh, you got to get them prepared to deliver the live young that perpetuate the production system. And so that last trimester or whatever it might be, the last uh, month or two uh, ahead of delivering that young is to me, a very critical one, and we're definitely in that period right now, considering the spring cabin, the spring kidding, the spring lambing that's coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, especially you know when we're when we're looking for a, a calf crop or like you said a, a you know a lamb crop. So you mentioned 
spring calving usually coming up here and there are some folks out there that that fall calve is that mostly a marketing decision that that's taken place or and i know this this is a this is a big rabbit hole right um there's people that could get in arguments about what's better <laughs> but just for those that don't know and, and may have heard the terms terms out there like i said maybe maybe explain kind of the thought process uh in and why a producer would take their herd one one direction or the other you want to fire uh, on that one, David? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> in my unqualified uh, opinion, I think that the – Adam, you hit it. I, I think part of it is is marketing and, and, and uh, payments, you know, and, and things like that. But I do have a lot of people that, uh, depending on what else their operation might entail – um, will, will fall calf, you know, cause they say they're pretty, they're pretty busy in the spring, you know, with, uh, might have some other things going on. Uh, another thing for them is I feel like a lot of guys that go to the fall calving season are trying to not have to deal with the weather that they have to deal with in the spring. And in my area, just, just probably, uh, to give you an idea, I'd say we're probably 65%, 65 to 70% spring calvers. And, you know, um, remaining being fall but i i'm seeing more people i don't know i really don't have an answer for why other than maybe what i already said but that that are going to the fall i think they're trying to capture a different market too you know a lot of those cattle that uh, that will be in the fall will sell in those program sales in like may and june and that seems to be a really good time of year so there's a lot of different variables but i would say if i had to pick one I, that i get from producers i'm going to say that that they get tired of winter and they want to get those calves on the ground when they're not having to worry about it being cold. So that would be kind of what I'm thinking. And I agree with that. That's uh, exactly right. It's well put. Uh, the the calving environment for what calves that are coming in the fall is much more conducive to uh, minimize stress and more optimal opportunity to get up and be alive and get going well, as opposed to dropping in February or March when you fight exactly what we're looking out the window looking at today and uh, thinking about how much extra energy it takes for a calf to try and survive that insult as it's brought into the world and, and get going good. Um, so I, I, I throw this out there too. Uh, Cameron, you mentioned, you know, body condition scores, you know, earlier. And so we have these uh, calf crop visits that we do. And I have basically four that I try to, um, throughout the year that I do, but the, the pre-calving one in that last trimester is probably the most important one for me. And I will say this from like a sanitation issue because it's usually cold. They, and they think they're going to have an issue with scours. They bring these cattle up and they bring them up in smaller traps, lots. And, um, and you're, you, you guys were talking about before we started about mud, you know, and, and, and uh, it never going anywhere. And what Doc's talking about, this energy requirement, you know, throw the cold weather, then throw the fact that they could be, you know, have wet backs. I'm talking about cows and calves and um, walking around in the mud. I mean, everything just got heightened. And so, I mean, from a nutrition standpoint, if, if they're going into that period and I'm there to score those cows and they're, they need, you know, they need to gain 150, 200 pounds before they calve. You, you talk about behind the eight ball. And I think, again, that's why a lot of those guys are going the other direction because they're not lotting those cattle up. They're letting them out there in the field because they're, they're not worried about, you know, the weather and having to catch them as much. And, and I think that it's, um, I think that shift is, is a, a culmination of things, but, uh, and it's tough when you're out there calving and what, what we're dealing with, like, over the next few days and into next week. So, 
you know, kind of build on that, you know, we talked about the kind of difference there. Is there a difference in the nutrition that we need to be thinking about as we're feeding throughout the winter for those calves, for those cow-calf pairs that were fall or spring, you know, those fall guys, they're trying to put weight back on, you know, to get ready to have another calf and also to continue to feed out that calf with the spring calvers, you know, we're trying to keep their body condition right. So when they do calve, so is there a difference that we need to be thinking about nutrition wise? I think the major difference for me is if it's a, if it's a fall pair um, going into winter and uh, I'm just going to say that she is in pretty good body shape, you know, so my, that, that nutrition for her probably, um, I mean, it could change, but if they were in good shape, I guess I wouldn't say I would have much, a much different thought, but where I will change because we have a calf on the ground to keep her in good shape. You know, I like to utilize, you know, a creep feeder in that situation, take a little pressure off her. Sure enough, help that calf out versus, you know, the cow that's prepping to calve here and another, you know, maybe she already has, but, you know, say 10 to 10 to 30 days, you know, um, back in the, uh, back in the fall with both herds, I would have, you know, pulled forward samples, you know, you know, evaluated that, see where we're at, see where we need to be at. So there are some factors there, um, but I don't know my plan of attack and the nutrition that I'm going to uh, utilize through a nutrition plan are going to be similar. Um, and, and what I recommend, it just might be a, a timing thing, you know, like I said, that definitely the calf throws a that fall calf um, i can help her out a lot more through creep feeding and we're seeing more of that too i'd say a creep feeder would definitely play, pay dividends especially for those fall calvers because like you said you're allowing that calf to have some other sort of nu nutrient source other than just relying on its mom mama cow mm -hmm. to produce milk yes yeah the other thing i would add to that one is that you know you've got to be ready to make some quicker changes during the spring months because of what the wet and the cold and the mud that David mentioned brings to you, it requires some immediate changes and in increased nutrients being made available to animals when they're going through those particular stressful times because it doesn't take long of nasty, long period of nasty weather to take a lot of weight off a of mama cow. It really yes, doesn't. Sir. Hey, and Cameron, I would add this too. Um, these, the, the customers that, that don't or, or won't uh, allow us to pull forage samples because they think they know what their forages are. And um, they're like, all oh, this feed, I'll just get, you know, we need protein. That's all we need, you know, and that that's where there's a big misconception too, especially just tying into what Doc just said, those quick changes that we, that we have to make, you know, to evaluate that. A lot of times they're, I don't want to use the term wasting their money, but a lot of times they're throwing something at these, these cattle in this, in this instance that does not, they're not getting their money's worth, I guess, you know, there's, there's, they're not utilizing us and and uh, to help them and to to make those to help make those decisions be part of their operation and and uh, some of them just they know and uh, they think they know and don't want to tell them that they're wrong but my goal is to help you be profitable and uh, sometimes a lot of farmers will, will catch them on that end when there's a problem like doc said when they've lost you know 75 to 100 pounds in the, in the last 15 days and now you come to me and and uh, or, or somebody else and need us to, to fix it and man it, it puts us in a uh, not a bad spot necessarily we can still we can still help them but they are they're behind that that eight ball even farther you know they're they're starting behind and then you start talking about well shoot 
now we're going to have trouble getting them bred back. You know, I mean, it's just a, it's, the cycle never stops. And, and that's why hopefully um, the ones that we that we deal with on a regular basis, we're helping them. And, and hopefully we'll get we'll get some in the future that that aren't that we can help, you know, because I don't want to say it's simple, but it's a lot simpler than farmers make it sometimes. Doc and I joke about that. I said it's pretty simple. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if that's really true, but everything that we read on the internet is not true. Everything we hear from our, from our neighbor is, is not necessarily true. And there's truth in everything that we say, I get it, but you get all these ideas and thoughts thrown at them and they're doing so many things. And, um, I, some of them might not be the right thing. Some of them might be, but they, they make it harder on themselves and they, they rack up a feed bill or an animal health bill, you know, whatever it may be. And it's just, the profitability is, is a lot harder to grasp whenever, You've made some, uh, some bad decisions on on the front side of that, I guess. Sometimes it's just because that's what they've always done, and so mm-hmm. they're just used to doing it. I mean, that's the same way with row row crops and stuff too. I mean, it's all across the board. You know, you get into a groove, you're just used to it. Well, this is what my dad did, or this is what my grandpa did, and we've always been, you know, we've survived. Whether or not <laughs> it's profitable, we survived. So that's what we're going to keep doing. In agriculture production, I think that is the hardest paradigm to break through and get them to consider new and different things because the the strongest training that any of them get is comes in their younger years from the previous generation or two behind them, and that sticks with them a whole lot longer and harder than what a lot of us give them credit for sometimes. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, – something about a forage test and it's like, well, it's more than just protein. What else are you looking for there, David? When, when, when somebody starts talking about that, maybe they mentioned, well, I know I need protein. What else do I need to, to make, make sure that everything's kind of set up well for, for that cabin to happen? Sure. So, you know, there's that test has got a lot of things that, that, um, that are important for me. Um, not as important for them, obviously I don't need to know all those things, but you know, um, I'm definitely trying to, to figure out the TDN or the, uh, the net energy. I always, I use the net energy lactation a lot, but TDN, I need, I need to figure out where that energy's at. I need to figure out, um, how much of that forage they can actually eat, you know, versus how much they can digest. And, um, so I can make determinations whether they need any supplement, you know, and, um, whether they need to, I need to help them to eat more, whether that's through the use of lick tanks or, or, um, tubs, you know, trying to get some um, sugars into them. So when I give a test back, I'll highlight several things. I'll go over that with each of them, but those are going to be the, the protein, the, the ADF, the TDN. Um, sometimes depending on what the forage is, you know, I'm obviously looking at nitrates too, um, trying to help them navigate that. We we seem to have, um, I, I, th- I feel like every summer down here is a drought. <laughs> so we have these sorghums and sedans and different different things that are causing some nitrate problems. And um, a lot of our producers do take advantage of fertilizer. And um, sometimes that gets tied up. And so we get a little higher nitrate. So that test, um, like I said, there's four or five things I'm looking at to try to help them. And um, I also don't just want to give them the test and also, hey, here's your nutrition plan. I do try to explain it to them to help them to be to be better. And um, I think that through that education, we're getting producers that are putting up some better forages. I didn't mention this, but moisture, you know, and dry matter, there's a lot of guys, especially with this wrapped hay, 
just because you have a I'm go, I'm like I said rabbit, Adam I'm going down a rabbit hole here but you oh, just because you have a rapper does not can, I don't think you need to be putting your fescue up at you know 65 percent moisture uh, because you're you'd have been better off just to just to to uh, wait you know whatever you need to do so anyway I think through that test it's kind of ironic but it's helping our farmers to not just be not just to know what their forage is, be better producers on how they put it up. Because again, Cameron, you were talking about this uh, in the row crop world. They've done it this way. They've survived this way. It works. Well, can you be better? I, I would yeah. challenge you to be better. So that test has been, has been, uh, well, I mean, I've done it forever, but I've modified the way that um, I've utilized it. And uh, what I just mentioned is how I'm using it now. And I think that they're, they're becoming better at their jobs as well as us yeah no that makes a lot of sense just by showing just by showing some kind of basic information at least at least it gives you a number or a baseline to, to kind of start from to make make improvements yep. so getting back to um getting back to late kind of that late gestation period um what um you know you've talked about a new nutrition plan kind of over the winter but but what are kind of some of the watch out situations or or what tends to get people the most um when when a calf is about is about to drop or what what tends to be kind of the most difficult things um that can can impact the herd then and and then kind of what are some of the ways that that folks can get on top of those or or maybe prevent some of that well it uh, brings the animal health things to come to my mind if I jump in here is that uh, uh in lake cabin i mean david has already mentioned uh, the calving environment especially in spring cabin that tends to get out of hand and become a real challenge because they're trying to manage calving by convenience on the producer's part more so than optimum environment for for the cow and the calf that's coming or for even lambs or, or goats for that matter but uh the, not only are we stressing the animals through the cold and the wet but you think about that calf hits the ground it gets chilled but the other thing that a calf is looking for as it hits the ground is it's once it gets up, it's looking for that first meal. And you get to think about the environment that cows in, uh, what that calf is going to get in addition to the first meal is everything that might be on the outside coating of that teat that it grabs a hold of. And the things that are in present in open soil, such as clostridial spores or E. coli and salmonellas from fecal contamination, those are hitting that calf's gut the first time too if you're not in a good quality calving environment. So uh, you've already put one or two strikes against that calf because you're asking its very naive immune system to try and get a hold of mom's colostrum quick enough to generate some antibodies in its system to fight up the bugs it took in with the first drink of milk it went after. So uh, it's it it's comes into play there that brings to mind the producers that want to use pre-calving scour vaccines on cows, which is, is a fine tool in and of itself. But to me, if you manage the environment right, where it's as dry as it can be, clean and got some grass cover, there shouldn't be any need for those pre-calving scour vaccines. But if you're going to use them, again, the time of year we are, keep in mind that if you want the best level of antibodies in that mom's first milk, that colostrum, those vaccines need to get into them no closer than 30 days ahead of calving, lambing, or kidding, no matter which species you're talking about, in order to provide a level of uh, antibody levels in that first colostrum to actually do the calf any good. So the timing of vaccines, the timing of your pre-calving treatments uh, becomes uh, plays a role. So you've got a lot of things to consider in that that last 45 to 30 days before uh, before the little ones start arriving. Right. And so most of that 
most of, so most of that scour uh, in in new calves or like like you said whatever species most of that is is bacterial caused I is kind of what you were saying then well bacterial and viral because if you look at the okay. pre-calving specific to to cows pre-calving scour vaccines will include the uh, E. coli's and Clostridiums in addition to rotor and coronaviruses so there are two viral components too and shoot we can talk about coronavirus and go down that rabbit hole and take on all sorts of things but anyway the two viruses <laughs> can come into play but really the viruses don't even get a hold of a newborn calf if it's not unduly stressed and has good antibodies for mom. So um, again, the scour vaccines, pre-calving scour vaccines can be a tool, but even when I was recommending them in private practice to certain producers, I was recommending those use of those vaccines to try and at least put a some kind of a roadblock in front of a a scour problem we knew we had, but at the same time, I was trying to coach that producer to make nutritional and or environment and animal husbandry changes to where we get to a point where we no longer need those vaccines. Uh, because my approach to vaccine use and a little bit of a tangent here is that there are, there's a basic core set of vaccines we need for herd health in terms of your four-way virals and your leptovibrio for breeding herds and your clostridials uh, and the pastorellas for calves growing up. But beyond that, there are a whole bunch of vaccines we can sell producers, but beyond that core set, you don't need those other vaccines unless there's a diagnosed problem with it. And even if you have a diagnosed problem, it is it'll be a good indication that you need to make some management and or other changes to where it no longer is a problem and you no longer need those vaccines. So it's a it's a kind of a convoluted thing you go through, but that's part of the questioning and building a relationship with producers as such as David and the other salespeople do that that allows you to open up some of those windows of information where you can kind of start seeing where the little weak links in the chain are or the the chinks in the protective armor you try and build around the livestock you're producing and and try and make those changes that can allow you to produce profitably without throwing a lot of money at different tools that you may or may not actually need. Yeah, I wouldn't want to have to put put more vaccines it's just like you don't want to have to vaccinate yourself uh, any more than what what you absolutely have to so right just, um what about um on the are, are any parasite things that you're worried about that time of year or i mean those don't or the do some of those pass from from mom to baby or you're not worried about some of that and until they get out on grass the following summer well, most of the internal parasites uh, don't worry about in the young calves until they're getting out on the pasture. Uh, uh, the moms, of course, should have been uh, dewormed uh, prior to actually calving, kidding or lambing again, and throw those things in there too. But uh, they need a good uh, cleaning up of the internal parasites in order to make better use of the nutrition that you're trying to get into them through those late gestation periods, and and also to uh, to well. To prevent the parasites from taking some of those nutrients away from them. Uh, the one parasite load that I think you might see and have some concern about uh, during this particular time is is the external parasites or lice. And you get the colder weather, cattle group closer together, the lice problems can blow up on you pretty quick. And it may require uh, an additional use of some kind of an external parasite control product in order to knock lice down, even though you previously dewormed them with a product that had some in external parasite control uh, back later in the fall or earlier this winter. Uh, but you have to be uh, aware of that because you don't need any kind of parasite load at all, taking nutrients away from what mom's trying to do and what she's trying to provide for that little one. So on nutrition for those new calves and, and you know, David, you mentioned uh, some like creep feeding uh, at this time of year, even for, for fall calves, but maybe kind of walk me through what you usually like to see in on fall versus spring. Um, like I said, you mentioned the 
creep feeder over the winter for for fall calves that makes a lot of sense for for trying to get them trained to be on feed kind of trained to eat well uh, are you looking to the same way for spring calves do they start further ahead further behind what do you usually see well we have the advantage of you know after they're born they're after uh grass and um getting them i'd love to get a creek feeder out for them a lot earlier i I just feel like that helps those guys market some of those calves a little quicker in the fall the problem is is they they have that milk and and they love mom and they have that grass and they love grass and um the feeder is just a pretty distraction so it's pretty hard to get them to go to that feeder those springborn calves um if if those two other variables are there Uh, but I do, I do like it. It doesn't seem to get utilized though until the summer um, or sometimes early summer, depend on our, our weather situation. But yeah, I'm still looking for the same thing. It's just a lot. It, it's a slower process with them. Um, I could give you like examples for me. I try to put a creep feeder out June 1st and uh, I had 24 calves this year and I put a hundred pounds of uh, creep feed in there. And uh, you know, it took them, um, it, it took them probably close to a month to, to move that hundred pounds. And I'm pretty sure 75 of that got packed off by raccoons. So I think that, uh, um, I want it out there. I, I want to help those calves. I, I still want to take some pressure off a of mom, but it's later versus the, the fall. We have the things that doc was talking about. The, we have the environment, we have the stresses, we they're just a lot uh, inter- more energy requirements and they don't have, they have hay, you know, and around Baylor, they have a farmer that's unrolling it. They will go to that feeder. I can get those calves started a lot sooner. So um, I like it in both situations. I wish I could do more in the, for the spring calves. Um, and, and I guess we do get them a little bit of nutrition. A lot of my guys will, will use uh, tubs and those cattle will go to those tubs with their mom. Um, probably not getting a whole lot, but hey, listen, if they're if they're over there and they know what it is, they're they're getting a little something. So, yeah, sure. One thing on the calves that that I know, you know, there may be, I'm sure a lot of people listening that that have heard and and know a lot about this subject, and some that may not know much at all. I'd probably put myself somewhere in the in the middle. Um, but can one of you, and and this may be a Dr. Martin question, talk a little bit about implants on calves and um, kind of what what it is where it goes and and kind of implications of that through the through that animal's lifetime sure uh you know the implant technology is probably one of those that uh, pays the best in terms of return on investment of about any of the technologies you can provide from the animal health and feeding world uh, but it's also one that's drastically underutilized i think part of it was some misinformation a few decades ago that uh kind of devalued uh, implanted calves coming through the market chain. I think that's finally dissipated. But again, back to that memory of what dad did, what grandpa did, calves kind of stuck around. But implants related to calves, we generally don't think about uh, starting implants very early on calves. Uh, if you're going to start them early, you're looking at either a, a Cinevex C or a Ralgro, and that can go into a calf that's just a, a well, just a week or two old if you wanted to. It's a, a very nonspecific implant. But the caution I have on those really early implants on real young calves is that especially if producers are going to uh, uh, think about saving back any replacement heifers or going to produce any bull calves out of it, you, you really don't want to be, in my mind, implanting either one of those 
two types of animals that has some destiny to become a, a, a member of a breeding herd. Uh, even though route grow has a claim for being able to use on on heifers, if you're using it early and uh, and not create any reproductive problems, I still have cautions about that. But uh, a very mild implant, or, or uh, as we call it, the Ralgro Cinevex C is a good one to start with. As most implants, it'll last 90 to 100 days. So if you're going to start down an implant path, uh, think about how long you're going to own a calf and make sure that uh, the implant you're using, you're going to get most of the return on. Uh, in other words, if you're going to sell a calf in 30 days, don't be putting a, an implant that's going to last 90 in its ear right now. You're not going to get the benefit out of it. But if you're going to own it for 180 days, then think about uh, an early implant and maybe even a follow-up implant to getting into the next level of intensity. Uh, uh, but there are a lot of implants out there. Uh, I encourage producers to talk through with their their feed advisor, whether it be David or some of our key account managers, to to know what's the best implant for the particular stage of growth that uh, that the calves are in. But there are those two implants, Cinevex C and Ralgro, that could be applicable for for young calves uh, within the first few weeks after they're born, and it's uh, a good time to consider it, especially if you're going to catch that calf and give it its first round of of, uh, of say of a clostridial, seven-way clostridial, and and maybe even an intranasal version of the virals. Uh, as far as the early vaccination program, that's an optimum time to be slipping an implant in the base of that ear, and it's a, a fairly easy thing to do, and it definitely pays. So I'll, I'll say this, because Doc gave you a very good professional answer. Um, somebody will ask me about an implant, and um, I always say that I don't know of much that you can get that kind of return on it. It's probably about like a game, GameStop stock, you know, right now. I mean, I, I know it's not quite uh, 20 to 1 on the implant anymore because implants have went up a little bit since Ralgo came back on the market. But, Doc, it'd still be like an 18 to 1 return, wouldn't it? I mean, it's it's still really high. I mean, it's yes. a, a very, very – and like I said, some disruption in the in – the, um, marketplace and and given a bad name over time but man there there's nothing that I, I love to see those guys do it um and i got a lot i have a lot of guys that do that but that return is um far worth um uh, the investment yep yep the thing that's a good time to remind them too if you're going to use it that's also another justification for making sure your nutrition plan is right because you mm -hmm. can't in, implant a calf that's got pour nutrients in front of it and expect that implant to do nearly as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, so you're not seeing any, sorry, David, you're not oh, seeing any, any, uh, any implications of those at, at the marketplace anymore. Most of that's gone. I mean, they're positive yeah. or negative, I guess. I, yeah. I mean, the, the guys in our area that are doing it, it's, you know, say through the health track program, it's documented on that certificate. That certificate goes to the barn. Those buyers see that, that list of, uh, of uh, vaccines, uh, you know, animal health items, especially those implants that are on there. And I'm, I'm not seeing, you know, I'm not at every sale, but I'm at the, I'm at most of them and see those capsule sell. And I'm, I'm not seeing any, any discounts there. Um, you'll see cattle come through there that are claiming to be, you know, an all natural program or things like that. I can't tell that they're bringing any more than the ones that had the, that had the implants. And there's going to be people that will argue with me about that. But what I'm seeing with my own eyes, I'm not seeing any, any justification that um, to not do it. I mean, it's, 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 they're not discounted that, as far as I'm concerned. You're selling by weight and uh, it, implants are definitely going to put more quality weight on them and it's, it's yep. not fat. It's good muscle growth. So what is, what exactly is in that implant? Is it just a growth hormone or can you, or how does that work? Well, you're, you're, 
your less aggressive implants, like the Ralgro and the Cinevex C I'm talking about, uh, they are primarily really low-dose estrogen implants that can work on either sex, either male or female. Uh, and that low dose of estrogen is enough to alter the nutrient use of, that goes into that animal to shift it more toward uh, production of uh, more muscle cells, bigger muscle cells. Uh, it, so there is hormone involved in it, and that tends to put up yellow and red flags to some of the consumers out there and think about, well, you're putting hormones in them. But shoot, sure. the hormones that end up being present in uh, in beef, if you and I have probably seen all those those charts, is really on a serving of beef is still less than what you're going to get if you're going to eat a salad that's got a lot of lettuce in it. It's 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 insignificant, but yet it makes enough of a change in the early growth patterns of those 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 calves when they have that ability to grow and convert very well. It just helps them convert more of it more efficiently to the kind of muscle growth that turns into the uh, the lean harvestable material that uh, we all enjoy later on. Yeah, you know, Doc was talking about um, the nutrition side of that and uh, the animal health side of that with those implants. You know, just just something to think about if you if you have cattle charge and you have I won't pick a, a brand, but if you have an implant in them there at weaning and they were vaccinated properly, that's that's kind of like having Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback. I mean, he's <laughs> not going to lose. So just just throwing that out there for everybody. I like it, David. <laughs> As we go down the road a little bit further there, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, new calves and, and some things that we can do uh, to, to kind of help get them ready. Because, I mean, that, that's essentially what we're marketing anyway. Um, any watch outs as, as we turn back out on grass in the spring or, or maybe, you know, maybe we've got an annual planted somewhere that we can graze really early in the year trying to get those animals, you know, off the muddy lot situation as quick as we can, obviously, without without hurting our pasture for the for the following year. But, you know, I know in, in as we get kind of to, to cool season grass growth time, late March and April, that grass is growing really, really fast. And so are there any things that you're kind of watching out for uh, as that happens? Well, the biggest thing in my mind when you got that early lush growth of grass is being sure that you've taken the preparatory steps to minimize the chance for grass tetany to occur. Uh, if you've done a good job of fertilization, depending on what the potassium levels are there, you can adversely affect the magnesium uptake in the plants to where you are short in the animal on magnesium available, and that's what grass tetany is. It's a magnesium shortage. So uh, leading into those turnout times, making sure the cows have already seen some kind of a high mag mineral or a mag aid, David knows those better than I do, uh, is, is an important preventive step to make sure that they can uh, make good use of that forage without running into an obstacle that sets them back. It doesn't have an adverse effect on the calves. It's primarily effect on cows, but it's it's one of the things to be aware of as you get turned out on, on the lush, early green growth of the, of the pastures. Yeah, that was going to be my question is how is important is minerals in that sense, you know, early on in the spring, especially for those spring calvers when those mama cows have dropped a calf and now they're getting ready for getting back into heat, um, you know, later on in the spring, early summer, um, how important is that? Uh, it's, it's extremely important. And, uh, especially that brings to mind the, the formulations of the ricochet minerals that contain some of the seal technology that Dr. White's put together. You know, those are definitely important in the 60 days, at least leading up to cabin and probably for the first 30 to 60 days after cabin, uh, because of the 
chelated trace minerals and the absorption of those trace minerals and vitamins that are key to maintaining the kind of condition and, and immune system stability that will actually allow that calf, cow to calve very well and then maintain the optimum protective internally to be ready to clean up and, and get bred back at a fairly reasonable time period. And then you go beyond that, uh, definitely shifting into uh, the minerals for the spring that we talked about from a, a magnesium standpoint. And, and don't forget, as we head into that spring, the other thing that's coming up other than lush growing grass is, is also the first hatch of flies. That's when we think about making sure we're making some kind of a fly control additive uh, like the Clarifly. Uh, that uh, can be put in with a mineral to where we minimize uh, uh, the overpopulation of the horn flies, the external parasites that we fight the rest of the warm times of the year before we get around to the next winter kill off. Yeah, you got to take the good with the bad on the on the cold weather. Um, <laughs> it may yeah, be zero right. degrees outside, but at least there's no flies, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> what, what about clover or legumes as, as that during that kind of time of the spring does that does that change or do you worry when uh, kind of what at what level do you worry about turning cows out on something you know i know from for cover crops there's folks using crimson clover or some of our pastures you know we've we've kind of glorified clover in the back in, in the past at times and um we just have a lot of it out there uh do you worry about that kind of high protein legume forage going in going into a cow Oh, it can cause some looseness of stool from a health standpoint. The thing I think about clover and turn them out on, if you're going to turn out on on any kind of a, a grazing area that's more than 50% clover, you better make sure that they're, uh, the cows and or some older calves have got a pretty good fill to them before you turn them out. And you may want to turn them out for a while and then bring them back off of it because the bloat potential on legumes is a very real concern. Uh, and if they haven't... Uh, haven't seen it and you turn them out on a, a lush or a high percentage or a straight clover pasture, uh, you could be asking for trouble. So there there has to be some caution there. There are some animal health tools such as bloat blocks that basically contain a bloat preventive compound that if you get them started on that uh, 30 days before you're ready to turn them out on the clover, it can help prevent it some, but uh, your best mode of prevention for any bloat on the, on the high quality good growing green lush legumes is to how you manage their introduction to it and, and making sure you're not turning a bunch of starved and hungry animals onto it because that's where it'll hurt you the most. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's kind of what I was I was hoping you would you would talk a little bit about. It is something that, you know, folks don't necessarily understand. They look out there and or at least I wouldn't, you know, not not having a, a huge cattle background. It's like, oh, I've got got a lot of forage out there. I should just turn them out. Right. Um, right. And it's uh, some things that you got to watch out for or, or can really, really bite you a little further on down the road. Um, can you talk about um, a, a few things as far as getting those cows? You mentioned it a few times, but getting them bred back, you know, what do we need to do to make sure I mean, is there is there a time frame that we should be looking for? And that, and I and I know this kind of times back up with our fall versus spring calving. Um, but what are you looking for, you know, during that during that heat cycle and making sure that they all get bred back? Yeah. Well, the biggest contributor to that uh, is is the positive plane of nutrition that they need to be on as that calf hits the ground, not only to maintain good lactation, but to help them retain enough body condition to where they're in what that body condition score five, I think that's what we still talk about, David, in terms of yes. what we want them to be in to get them to bred back. And, you know, if you want to get a calf every 12 months out of a cow, which is what you need to be doing, if you want to have a chance at some some good management, and decent profitability, uh, she has to be 
the uterine environment has to clean up and she has to start cycling and be ready to be bred back in, in 60 to 90 days after that calf hits the ground in order to meet that 12-month calving interval that you're after. And so that's a lot to ask of a, of a new mom, and it's especially a lot to ask of of the first-time moms, the heifers. So that's another thing that needs to come into play this time of year is, is think about what your management plan is going to be for your first or second calf heifers versus what your cow herd is and maybe how you split animals up and group them differently together. So where you can feed them in different ways to make sure that they're on the right kind of plane of nutrition and in the right kind of shape to where you can have better success when it comes time to either do your synchronized and AI program or when it comes time to turn the bulls in with them to accomplish the breeding that you want to get ready for the next year's calf crop. You got to be thinking all those things as you go along and that's where having a, a team of people to help you do it like David and the, the key account managers. Uh, uh, it's good to be able to bounce things off of people and uh, have a relationship where you can talk through those things and, and help in the planning process. Otherwise, it gets pretty mind-boggling. Well, <laughs> and to sure. add to what Doc was saying too, you know, we, I mentioned earlier that we try to do a pre, a pre-calving, um, you know, kind of calf crop visit, you know, and go through some things. Um, I said, that's probably my most important one, but this one's no less important, but you know, a post-calving because Doc mentioned 60 to 90 days to try to get her bread back, get her right and get her bread back. And he mentioned all the things that you need, but if I can evaluate that, that, you know, 75% of that cow herd, um, that, I mean, that has calves on them and can make some nutrition changes there um, early on. Um, I'm hopefully, you know, um, timing and um, getting her bread back will be in a uh, tight, you know, that tight interval window that we're looking for. And we're not getting those stragglers. And I'll throw this in there. So Doc mentioned the mineral, you know, and the chelates. So, so important um, for them to have before, after he already, he already talked about that and um, making those adjustments as, as we need them, because that's another hard time to, for her to be putting weight back on when everything is, is coming off her back and going to that calf. And then like, like I said, I kind of just made a full circle there, but if they wait until we're already 60 days uh, post calving and then are, are trying to do something in the next 30, it becomes a lot harder. If you give me 90 days, it's a lot easier. So um, a lot of people think the grass good go on. I, I just, there's, there's a lot to that. And doc, Adam might be getting ready to ask you this, but also that's the same time. And this is where I get involved. A lot of guys are bringing those, those, uh, uh, herds up and, and vaccinating and warming at that time when they're open. And I, and I, and like I said, I don't know if Adam's going to ask that, but that's when I usually get to see those, those, uh, uh, cows and calves too. And uh, makes it a lot easier to, to lay eyes on them and actually evaluate them uh, there in a pen, not out from the truck, you know. So I don't know if you can shed light on that, but it, that's a super important time as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, we're still in a situation where far too few of our, our cattle producers actually get the cows and calves by side up and actually go through a a pre-breeding set of vaccinations. There's still an awful lot of them that give their booster vaccinations sometime around preg check, you know, next time around rather than getting them up uh, early on and doing it pre-breeding. But if they're doing it, uh, you've, ex you've described a, a perfect opportunity to do uh, the body condition scoring and, and as they're running through the chute, giving those pre-breeding vaccinations for leptone vibrio and the four-way virals to those cows and uh, get an evaluation on what kind of condition they are and, and give you some kind of an indication of what steps you need to take uh, leading up to having some good breeding her breeding season success. 
You know, we, we're sitting here talking about, um, spend a lot of time talking about nutrition for the cows and the calves, but to kind of switch a little bit of gears, is there a difference in how we need to be thinking about for those producers that are running bulls instead of doing AI on how, on what they need to be for conditioning their bulls so that they can make sure they're in the right condition so that they can, you know, get across that herd and make sure we have a good consistent, um, calving for whether it's in the fall or the spring. Yeah. You're exactly right, Cameron. It's uh, all too often we talk about the cows and uh, the, the bulls are a part of the breeding herd. They are a big part of it, a very important part of it, and they too often get ignored. When we talk about our pre-breeding vaccinations, we take talk about the cows, but they, those same, same things need to go into the bulls. And the bulls need to maintain good body condition, not be over fat by any means. They're, it's important to body condition them. Uh, they need the same vaccination schedule like I said we on the cow herd and they need a, a thorough examination to make sure their their feet and legs are good you don't have overgrown claws and make sure that they're doing a breeding soundness exam a formal breeding soundness exam looking at semen quality and quantity uh, before you ever get ready to turn them out with the cows so you got a lot of things to do on the bulls during that 90-day period after the cows finish calving before you get ready to turn the bulls in you know and you're going to not wait 90 days to turn them in, but uh, you've got to have all that stuff done to the bull and evaluated uh, before you get ready to turn them out. So they need to be thinking about that at this time too. Yeah, that's, I mean, we, I grew, we raised cattle growing up and that was the one thing that I always remember my dad and my grandpa talking about was, is, you know, that bull looks like he's put on a little too much weight before it's going to start going in this time and he's not going to be able to get around very well. So making sure they're in the right condition for when you're ready to turn them out is very critical. Yep. Very true. Good stuff. Guys, what have we, what have we kind of missed in the, in kind of early spring? I, I mean, any time of the year, as far as a, as a cow calf operation, you know, talked a little bit about vulnerability. We've talked a lot about nutrition. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of key in, in, in talking about animal health, that a lot of it goes, goes back to nutrition and, and what you can do to, to make those changes. But is there anything major that, that we've missed on um, from, from a watch out scenario? Well, the other thing that jumps into my mind, I just, just jotting some notes down on my own, is that, you know, we haven't really talked about all the little details of, say, on your calving supply list, if you want to say, and uh, mm -hmm. there it would be a longer list, and you'd want to go through uh, item by item. But uh, that's a list that uh, uh, I generated uh, several years ago and have updated along the way. But we make them available to our dealer locations, and uh, some of them actually have them posted somewhere along the aisles that uh, basically remind producers: Do you have uh, what supplies you might need to uh, help deliver the calf? Uh, do you have some Shield Plus around if the calf needs a dose after being born? Do you have colostrum supplements or replacers available if mom doesn't have enough colostrum to feed the calf? Uh, and the other multitude of supplies, whether it be OB sleeves, uh, lubricant, those kind of things, the chains, the calf pullers, all those kind of things. I encourage producers uh, and encourage the dealers with their producers to go down through that list and make sure that their supplies are in order and they're ready. Hopefully on, on the calf delivery age, you don't need those things, but heaven knows if you need them and you haven't identified them before the cabin season you're trying to scrummage around trying to find them that's not a good feeling to to have that you can't find what you're after so uh, maybe take a look at that uh, that supply list that you need to be ready for cabin season it's a, a good time to do that and, and make sure you can check them all off and know where they all are yeah there's nothing like having a cat spring calf in the middle of freezing rain at midnight and you realize that you're out of a milk replacer or something like that because 
you forgot to make sure you had that. So. Yep. That's the one thing that jumped in my mind. I can't think anything else that maybe we need to touch on, but uh, uh, David surely got something else on his list. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you touched on my favorite product, uh, Shield Plus. I mean, if that's not in their toolbox, then um, it, it needs to be. Um, and I won't get into everything with it, but it is so powerful. Uh, I mean, it's such a powerful tool. Um, if if the if the calf didn't need it, there's so there's a lot of advantages to it. If the calf needs it, there's a lot of advantages to it. So that would be that would have been one. And Doc Doc mentioned that we we don't utilize it enough, um, and it's it's simple to use. Um, I I don't really know. I think another thing, Adam, this goes back to way at the beginning when we were talking about the cree feeding. I, I want to throw this out there. I, I think good practice, especially in the in the on the springborn calves going into the fall um not everybody's going to try to do what i was doing to get them started on that creek feeder um early but i would say that i love the utilization of a creek feeder 30 days before you wean those calves and you were talking about it you know getting them used to eating you know um taking that stress away from them when you when you take them away from the love of their life and um that transition period and um that's a that's a huge huge thing and and I want to mention this about the fall calves as well, or, or either one, but you you talk about there's no time in their life when those farmers are going to be able to put gain on or as efficiently and cheaply as as that, that creep feeder. I mean, especially if their mom's still giving a little bit of milk, maybe they still have a little bit of grass out there. They're, they're, they're dabbling in through the through the um, summer months. And um, I think that we do a good job of um, positioning those feeders in the marketplace, but there, that's a, that is some gain there that more people should take advantage of. I wasn't trying to make a, a pitch there for, for creep feed necessarily, but we get a lot of guys that when we pull the shoot and scale out there in the fall and these calves are 50 to 75 pounds lighter than they were last year. This, this summer was horrible. This drought. Well, we tried to talk to you about, you know, getting that extra 50, 60 pounds back on them. And they, um, Oh yeah, I remember you saying that. So hopefully in the future that'll that'll be on their minds. But um, that's that's the only really other thing that I was kind of forgot to mention earlier is they're super wow. super efficient. It's 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 really good gain, cheap gain, and um, it's another way that they can hopefully sell heavier calves, put more money in their pocket. Yeah, I think that's a great point, David. Is to think about the fact that when you do have them on a creep feed, you know, shortly before they wean. It's not pulling them from the wean and then they lose weight because they're not used to not having that, you know, going to that feed or having the mama's milk. They're already ready to go straight to that feed and they don't have a little bit of that drop off like you might see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't, I don't look at it as a, a, a pitch, David. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you guys, um, you know, you and Dr. Martin both like you, you guys are around enough operations. You see enough operations. It you know the ones that that really make folks money um and the mm -hmm. ones that that make financial sense on on the on the marketing side of things and so yeah i mean it's it's not a pitch when you when you see that over and over again and you know the things just like you mentioned with the with the implants you know you guys know the things that that pay and, and some of the things that that may not all the time so i i do have one more thing that i like to throw out there and i and i I'm asked doc to to um comment about the this at the end uh, from a from an animal health standpoint but replacement heifers okay i know we're getting a little bit here but there's a lot of cattle that are, that that have left and are leaving the country 
um, during these, you know, less than ideal prices, you know, whether coronavirus caused that, what caused that, but um, they're not as good as they could be. So you'll see a lot of cows, old cows get cold, leave the herd. Um, a lot of people are, you know, they'll, they'll start keeping some replacements back, um, hopefully. And the way that from a nutrition standpoint that we manage those heifers, I, um, this is really, it's not touchy, but it's, it's a topic that when I talk to producers about, they just, it's a deer in the headlights, the way that we feed her and the effects, um, that that has long-term on, um, uh, trying to be politically correct here on, on her, on her udder and laying down fat in that udder, um, Corn's always cheap, right? I mean, that's what everybody says. So I, I feed these high corn diets and, and um, there's better ways to feed those heifers to, to make sure that you don't have this beautiful looking, you know, um, udder with no milk in it, that there's nothing. And doc, I, I'm probably not doing this subject justification, but um, you might touch on that. There, there is some adverse um, effects from the way that we feed those replacements and, and we'll get them bred, we'll, they'll calve, but they do not have near um, the milk that they should have based on the way they were fed growing up. And I don't mean lack of feed, I just mean fed incorrectly. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And you, you want to talk about the, the nutritional development of your replacement heifer programs or your replacement heifers. Uh, really, you need to think about that clear back to the point of conception when those uh, those heifers were conceived in their mom's womb, because how you feed that cow can affect that heifer even after she's born in terms of her ability to utilize nutrients and develop in a way that is productive for the herd and, and makes her a, a productive member of a breeding herd. Uh, you, the stresses you put on mom uh, has that uh, uh, basically potential genetic effect on that as yet unborn calf and then you want a replacement heifers to come out of those that are born in the first part of your calving period because that ten that tendency tends to carry on genetically to the next ones and then you don't want to overfeed them you want them to develop but you want them to develop the kind of a stature structure musculature not laying down layers of fat that will impede not only normal hormone and cycling effects, but also impede the development of a functional udder that's actually going to produce the quality and quantity of milk that she's genetically capable of when you actually get a calf off of her. Yes. Thank you, Doc. Yeah, that's interesting. That's stuff that, yeah, it's just you don't generally don't generally think of and this just takes a lot of planning ahead and it's it's a lot more than just kind of rolling with with whatever season it happens to be in at the, at the moment yeah well gentlemen thank you so much for for taking the time to do this um it 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 can be shameless plug time if you guys have um if you have uh if you have a social media account or anything like that 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 you like people to check out or or anything that you um, want to throw out there? Um, I always, I always like to at least allow for shameless plug time. Well, I'm available for birthday parties if anybody needs me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to come to one just to see what the entertainment value is. <laughs> really now, the only shame, shame, the only shameless plug I would, I, it's not shameless at all. The plug I'd put out there is, uh, especially if there are producers that have a chance to listen to this podcast, is to basically look out and 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 make a. Make a team member of that MFA representative that uh, you have close to you. There's build a team of individuals that can help you identify 
where the critical needs are in your production system, no matter what it is, and can work with you to make the best decisions about uh, uh, what changes to make or what things to consider, uh, what to do in order to have the best success and the best level of profitability you can in whatever enterprise you're working with. There, there's a, a team of individuals on the ground that are MFA employees, but uh, those MFA employees also have access to oodles of other information uh, that's out there that can bring it to bear on whatever situation that the uh, producer might be in. Yeah, I'll say this too. Um, so Doc's been around longer than, than I have, which makes him older than me as well. But um, <laughs> Good, and that, we'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah, so. you make sure you do that. Yep. So yep. in 20 years though, and, and this isn't um, to boost anybody's ego, I've worked with a lot of different teams, a lot of different areas throughout MFA's trade territory. And um, I have never worked with such a good group of, of uh, guys and gals and that, that want to work with these producers, you know, and we have, we have uh, plans and programs in place to help them. We have the resources to help them and, and we want to help them. And so, like Doc said, if there are producers that uh, potentially get to listen to this, reach out to us. I mean, there's, there's, five of me throughout the state there's you know there's several cams in each of those areas and not just livestock i mean there's agronomy cams we have precision experts i mean utilize us as one of your um members of your operation um we're not on payroll but we will we will work with you and and help you and um i don't know the answer like like doc said we i have the resources to get that through mfa and um i just that that wouldn't be my that'd be just my plug for MFA, you know. Let let us help you. So, well, you guys did way too good with that. I'm I may have to rename I may have to rename shameless plug session to to, to <laughs> something else next time. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expected for such a uh, expecting such a quality response. So I'll uh, I'll rename that on your account in the future. <laughs> guys, thanks again. This is a fun conversation. I know I've learned a lot. And, and I'm sure other folks to have to you and, and we'll have to get you both back on here at some point. Well, I enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully it was a benefit. Uh, it was a good conversation. Yep. I think so, I, guys. Thank, thanks for having me. I am still just as ecstatic now as I was at the beginning. So yeah, you, you call me. <laughs> guys, I appreciate you, uh, you know, giving me the opportunity to be on here and just, just let me know if I can ever help you again. For sure. You can, uh, you can certainly bet that we will. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yep. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.